David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 126 of A History of England. Last week we talked about the hardships suffered in northwest England, specifically in the county of Lancashire, when the textile industry had to lay off workers in the so-called cotton famine caused by the American Civil War. The week before that, we saw how Britain was beginning to come off the pinnacle of power it had reached at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. It had been powerless to help out Denmark when Prussia, with its ally Austria in tow, attacked it to shift the provinces of Schleswig and Holstein to German control. Britain's behaviour during the American Civil War was another instance of the same trend. The Prime Minister, Palmerston, still keen on his credentials as a Liberal, had at first backed the Confederate States of the South in the name of the right of nations to self-determination. He came close to war with the Union over the arrest by its navy of two Confederate envoys travelling to Europe to rally support for their cause in what came to be known as the Trent Affair from the name of the British mail ship on which they were seized. But then the war began to swing the Union's way. When Abraham Lincoln made the war about slavery, Palmerston had a pretext for switching allegiance to backing the North, in line with much of British public opinion. Again, though, while he didn't entirely avoid intervening, allowing British supplies to go to one side or the other, he avoided anything like full backing for either through military involvement. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it was the sensible approach to avoid war, but this wobbling around from one side to another without backing either fully hardly enhanced Britain's standing as the world's superpower. Lord Derby, leader of the Conservative Party and of the Opposition, underlined the weakness of this stance in a speech to the House of Lords in February 1864. His direct target was Lord John Russell, the Foreign Secretary, but his criticisms could have been equally addressed to the whole of Palmerston's government and its policy of non-intervention. The foreign policy of the noble earl, that's Russell, as far as the principle of non-intervention is concerned, may be summed up into homely but expressive words, meddle and muddle. Wherever he has interfered, and he has interfered everywhere, he has been lecturing, scolding, blustering and retreating. It was ironic that this should be happening under Palmerston's leadership. This was, after all, the man who had invented the notion of gunboat diplomacy by sending ships to blockade Athens in the Don Pacifico affair. He was the man who was prepared to wield a big stick to make the entire world respect the rights of British subjects. Now he was having to dodge and duck and let events take their own course. Where Derby got things wrong, though, is the implication that the lecturing, scolding, blustering and retreating were the government's preferred approach. I'm certain that Palmerston would much rather have lectured, scolded, blustered and sent in the Royal Navy, as he had in Athens. After all, Britain had done that again against a feeble enemy like the declining Empire of China in the Second Opium War. If instead he ended up retreating, it was, I suggest, because Britain was having to be a lot more cautious when it was dealing with far more powerful potential adversaries, such as the old enemy France, the newcomer Prussia emerging as a major power after its victory over Denmark, or indeed the United States. The workers in Lancashire, who'd suffered so badly through the cotton famine, had shown far more resolve. As we saw last week, a public meeting attended by many of them had voted to send a letter to President Lincoln 
urging him to fight on until the Confederacy was defeated and the slaves freed. That was despite the war being the cause of the hardship they were suffering. You might have expected either of two responses to the courage of the Lancashire workers. Only one of them occurred. The case against extending the right to vote to poorer people by lowering the property qualification had been that unpropertied electors would be inclined to vote only in their own interests. The glorious implication was that the wealthy and the extraordinarily wealthy hadn't been doing precisely that ever since they'd had the vote. People applying double standards, however, have no self-awareness, or if they do, no shame. The self-sacrificing behaviour of the victims of the cotton famine showed that they were fully capable of taking a stand on principle, even against their own interests. That acted as a spur to the movement, emerging again at that time, for further reform of the electoral system. The other response to the Lancashire suffering might have been to look at what more the government could do to alleviate hardship. The governing party, the Liberals, was, however, the successor to the Whigs who'd done so little to help the Irish in the Great Famine. They'd left the Lancashire workers to get by on voluntary relief and the minimal assistance provided by the Poor Laws. Palmerston's government left the Poor Laws untouched, and indeed they remained in force, with all the humiliating horror of the workhouses they created, until another Liberal government, in the early years of the 20th century, finally turned its attention to the problem of providing a real safety net for the poor. There was no disagreement on this issue from the Conservatives. It's again Lord Derby who provides an excellent insight into attitudes towards the relief of the Lancashire poor. He was chairman of the Central Executive Committee to alleviate the hardships suffered by the victims of the Lancashire cotton famine. He told the committee on the 2nd of December 1863... The amount to which we have endeavoured to raise our subscriptions has been to the extent of from two shillings to two shillings and sixpence weekly per head. Consequently, a man and his wife with a family of three or four small children would receive not two shillings, but ten or twelve shillings from the fund. More, Darby reckoned, would destroy the most valuable feeling of the manufacturing population, namely that of honest self-reliance, and induce the recipients to prefer the wages of charitable relief to the return of honest industry. Ring a bell? Providing a decent income to the unemployed would put them off working. Not an argument unheard in our days either. And what if more could have been done? Well, together with the relief provided by the committee over which Darby presided, it would have meant raising the poor rates, a tax on local people for poor law support. In the first place, he argued, we have no power to compel the guardians to raise the rates beyond that which they think sufficient for the maintenance of those to be relieved, and, naturally considering themselves the trustees of the ratepayers, they are unwilling, and indeed, ought not to raise the amount beyond that which is called for by absolute necessity. Those who were paying rates, in other words, those who still had salaries, needed to be protected too, according to Darby, even if it meant leaving the unemployed on subsistence incomes. What is called for by absolute necessity, as he put it. The income Darby refers to of 10 or 12 shillings a week for a family of five or six needs to be compared to the pre-crisis wages of 30 shillings a week for a top-end cotton spinner or 22 for a less skilled worker. Since, as we've seen, several members of a family might be employed in a mill, family income before the cotton famine could be 30 to 40 shillings a week. 
At this time, a farmhand, one of the least well-paid workers in England, might make around 14 shillings a week. In other words, what Derby was championing for people who'd been earning well was a level of income below that of some of the poorest British workers. It allowed subsistence, which was better than in Ireland, where the famine had led to such loss of life. But it was still miserably poor. Incidentally, Derby was Britain's wealthiest Prime Minister, at least before Rishi Sunak. His fortune at the time was some £7 million, nearly £780 million in today's terms. I reckon that would provide an income of at least 280000 a year back then. That's nearly £5,400 a week, or nearly 108000 shillings. Just contrast that with the 10 or 12 he suggests the Lancashire unemployed should live on, and you'll see that Derby belonged to that fine English tradition, still very much alive today, of the colossally rich telling the poor what they should get by on. The central government would do nothing as poor laws were managed locally. Besides, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gladstone, had won much praise for keeping spending and taxes under tight control. He would hardly have wanted to raise finance for poor relief, even if it had been a central government responsibility, if that meant raising national taxation. Even the radicals backed Gladstone's approach. Radicals weren't socialists. On the other hand, they were keen on electoral reform and, surprisingly, on this question, Gladstone was returning the compliment and moving towards them. Although he came from a different tradition with his roots in the Conservative Party, he quickly moved to the left among the Liberals, sliding from his early opposition to electoral reform to joining the Radicals in enthusiastically backing the idea. Still, we've not quite reached the point when reform would move from being debated to being implemented. Even Lord John Russell, the main architect of the Great Reform Act of 1832, thought that there wasn't the parliamentary backing in the early 1860s for a further extension of the vote. That suited Palmerston well. He declared voting to be a trust, not a right. He believed the lower orders, as they were known, weren't yet ready for the vote. On the other hand, he was a keen proponent of extending popular education, and it's possible he felt that, with more education at some time in the future, the working classes might well be trusted to use the vote responsibly. This paternalistic attitude infused all his liberalism. He liked to travel the country and point out how much he had done in the liberal cause by backing religious freedom, free trade, local government reform, the abolition of slavery, and self-determination for oppressed peoples abroad. The people had got all that without the vote. Indeed, without it, they'd even got the Prime Minister they obviously wanted, as the warmth of the reception they gave him everywhere bountifully demonstrated. His popularity showed no sign of fading. He seemed to have a Teflon touch. Not even the kind of scandal that might have sunk another politician seemed to harm him. In 1863, it came out that the Prime Minister, who'd previously won himself the nickname Lord Cupid, had been having an affair with a Mrs O'Kane. Given that he was 78, the public seemed to have been more struck by his sprightliness than shocked by his morals. Conservatives even wondered whether he hadn't manufactured the scandal to enhance his reputation. A wit, amazed by Palmerston's apparently continued virility, asked, though the lady was certainly Kane, was Palmerston able? In reality, however, his health was declining quickly. In 1865, he had several months of illness. Then, on the 18th of October, at the age of 80, he died. 
That set a record that still holds today, with Palmerston being the last British Prime Minister to die in office. That's one celebrity death. But before we leave this episode, let's briefly deal with another I glancingly mentioned last week. That was the death of Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert. He developed digestive problems in the summer of 1861, which grew steadily worse. In December, his disease was diagnosed as typhoid. Having played one last and valuable role on behalf of his adopted country by working to calm tempers during the Trent Affair, and still aged only 42, later that month, he died. That left the Queen distraught. She wore black for the rest of her years. She retreated from public life, staying as much as she could in her palace at Windsor, in her home at Osborne in the Isle of Wight, or in the residence that she and Albert had brought together at Balmoral in Scotland. Many began to call her the Widow of Windsor. She discharged her official duties, but it would be over a decade before she fully re-emerged into public again. She'd been averse to the marriage when it was first proposed to her, but then, as we saw, she fell for Albert unequivocally when she met him again. Now, in her widowhood, the depth of her feelings for her late husband became clear for anyone to see. Meanwhile, though, after Palmerston died, political life still had to go on. The remaining major Whig figure in the Liberal Party was Lord John Russell, the outstanding proponent of electoral reform ever since the time of the Great Reform Act, which he did so much to implement back in 1832, 33 years earlier. With Palmerston dead, he would get his second chance at the top job as Prime Minister. And with it, the question of extending the right to vote would come crashing back onto the table with a vengeance. That's for next week. In the meantime, you might like to catch up with our companion podcast, Who the Hell is Norfolk? which provides a lighter, chattier view of many of the issues in A History of England and much more besides. Episode one of the second season is now out, taking a fresh look at that king who came to be known as the wisest fool in Christendom, James VI of Scotland and the First of England. Something else for you to enjoy. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>